It is so good to be part of the family of God. And I'm just glad you're here this morning. We're in a series going through the gospel according to Mark. And if you have your Mark journal, I invite you to take it out. If you don't have one, go ahead and raise your hand quickly. Some of our ushers will gladly come give you one. I see a couple hands being raised along here. Just keep it up real high. Let them see it. If you want to take notes, I would encourage you to turn with me to page 22. That's where today's notes will be filled in. We're going to be in Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. It's a very famous passage. It's one of the most familiar passages of the life of Jesus. It is that moment when Jesus comes to his followers in the midst of a storm, and he does so by surfing to them, I mean walking to them on the water. And so we're going to look at one of these miracles, but here's one of the things you need to know about this passage. It is not a passage with but one miracle. It is a passage with multiple miracles in it. And we're going to kind of look at those together today. Now, the key verse to set this up is right in the middle of the whole section. And this is sort of the central idea. It says immediately, Jesus spoke to them, talking about the disciples who were there in the boat, in the storm. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them and said, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Now, the context is one of storms. Now, show of hands, just just real curious, how many of you have ever been in a storm? Let's see some hands. Anyone ever been in a storm? Uh, How many of you have ever been in, uh, well, let's just start real low level, a, a rainstorm? Anyone? If you lived here sometime between, say, December and March, yes. How many of you have been in a snowstorm? Now, if you raise your hand, it means you did not grow up in Chattanooga. But, yeah, because what we get here, it's not snow. It's dandruff from the sky. Okay. Snowstorms. What about this? How many of you have ever maybe been in such a bad storm that there was a tornado either in your vicinity or you actually kind of could see one? Anyone? A tornado? Um, one of the biggest storms that we went through was in Houston. It was a hurricane. I've told you about this. And I remember when we first moved to Houston, one of the first pieces of advice was not about how to be a good minister. It, it was not about how to be a good husband. It was not about where the grocery was or which bank to choose. The first piece of advice came to me with a question. A person said, hey, we're so glad you're here. Quick question. Have you got your pack Packed. Have I got my pack packed? And he goes, yeah, have you, have you got your pack packed? I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, have you got your stuff all packed up? I said, dude, we, we just got here. Are you already like saying, see you later? I mean, what, what do you mean? Have you got your, I said, what are you talking about? He says, hey, we get hurricanes around here like children get the common cold. You need a survival kit if you're going to be here. I said, where did you bring us, God? Where I mean, first thing is get your survival kit. And I said, okay, well, what do you need in a survival kit? Because I have no idea. He says, well, you need water. I'm thinking, well, with a hurricane, <clears throat> why would you need more of what you're already going to get? And he goes, no, no, you can't drink that stuff. You need clean water. And you need batteries and a flashlight and you need some food rations and you need a tourniquet. I'm not making this up. I'm like, what? A tourniquet? What kind of storms do you get around here? And so he he starts to explain all the different things you need to survive a storm. And I said, well, how many times have you had to use this? He said, oh, once. I said, well, that's one too many times in my mind. 
I said, but why do you need all this? He said, because storms, hear me now, are unavoidable. You cannot avoid a storm, he said, but you can prepare for them. How many of us know that you are or I am or we will face storms in this life? In fact, right now in a group this large, let's just be real frank. Some in this church, you came today and you look beautiful. Or dudes, you look very handsome, whatever it may be. You're you're gussied up. You are wearing your clothes nice. You took a bath or at least a French bath. Whatever it may be, a little Axe body spray, young folk, whatever it is, you look good, but how many of us know that you can look good on the outside but experience a storm on the inside? And some of this room this morning, the storm is that you thought things were good until you got the call from your doctor. And you are now having to rethink not simply long-term plans, but short-term plans. We have friends who are connected to this church who are undergoing uh, chemotherapy and radiation treatment because cancer came in unexpectedly. And now plans are shifting. They're in a storm. For others in this room, you are in a financial storm and you have tried to plan, you've tried to prepare, you have done things, but the sales are not the way that you thought they were going to be. Uh, Maybe your boss just said, hey, we're downsizing and your department is the area that's being downsized. You are in the middle of a financial storm. For others in here, man, you come in holding your spouse's hand, but you are worlds apart. And you're in a relational storm. Or maybe with your children. I know so many in here. You are world-class moms and world-class dads. And you have world-class kids. But there are times, parents, it doesn't matter what you do. These children still have free will and get to make decisions. Some of which break your heart. And you're in a storm. And what I want to do this morning is I just want to give you four principles for how to prepare for and how to survive a storm from Scripture. Because here's the reality. If you are not in a storm today, you will be going into a storm sometime later in your life. Can I get an amen? And if you are in a storm, don't worry. You will be coming out of it. Life is about going in or in or coming out of storms. And until Jesus returns and fixes everything, this is going to be the speed of life, the rhythm of life. And so I want to give you four principles for navigating, for surviving storms. And if you want to write this down, here's the very first one. Number one, you can be in a storm and... And, and in the center of God's will. It is possible to be in the middle of a storm and in the center of God's will. Look at this passage, how it begins. Notice in Mark 6, 45, we're told immediately, that word immediately is in the gospel of Mark 42 times. It's a real fast-paced book, immediately, immediately, immediately. Immediately, Jesus, notice this, made the disciples... Say these four words with me. Get into the boats. He made them get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, Jesus went up on a mountainside to pray. So here's the context. Jesus has just fed 5,000 men plus women and children. In fact, here's sort of, a, sort of a setting for you. This is the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. If you want to see the full picture, go to page five in your book. But here's the Sea of Galilee. Jesus 
fed the 5,000 in what is described as a desolate place. This is where he broke bread, broke fish, and fed the multitudes. The people were told, according to John's account in chapter 6, the people are so excited about what Jesus is doing, they want Jesus to become their king, and they're going to make him king by force. Jesus goes, that's not the way that things are to happen. So he forces his disciples to get in a boat. He says, you go on, and he's going to send them from this region across to Bethsaida. Now, Bethsaida is where Peter grew up. It's Philip's hometown. He's sending him back home, you know, supposedly we think for maybe some R&R, just some relaxation. And while they do that, Jesus goes up into the mountains, we're told, to pray, to be with God. What is interesting, church, is they are doing what Jesus tells them to do. And yet, by obeying Jesus, they end up in the middle of a storm. How many of us know that sometimes following Jesus is the thing that leads you into a storm? Now, there's all sorts of ways that we can get into storms. In fact, this isn't in your notes, but if you want to jot this down, there's really five ways that you may find yourself in a storm. The first one is just bad decisions on your part. I mean, how many of us have paid the dummies tax? You know what the dummy tax is, right? You pay the cost for doing something dumb. Or you do something bad. Or you do something sinful. So when Jonah in the Old Testament finds himself in a storm, it's not because he was righteous, but because he was going the wrong way. And he found himself in a storm. Second reason you might be in a storm is not your sin or your bad decision, but someone else's. How many of us know that life is often pressed because of the bad decisions of other people? So in the Old Testament, there's a man named Achan who took something he was not supposed to take. And the consequence was the entire nation of Israel suffered for his sin. We know that the sin of other people can affect us. Third reason that you might be in a storm is because this world is simply broken. Is it true that natural disasters happen? Oh, yeah. Is it true that disease happens? Yeah. Is it true that famine happens? Absolutely. We are in a broken world and sometimes storms occur because this world is broken. It's not the way it was created, but it's the way that it has become because of the way that we have lived, the sin that we brought into the world. The fourth reason may be because of demonic activity. Now, I know some of you hear the word demon and it freaks you out. Here's what you need to know. The Bible is just as clear about angels and demons as it is about God. There are spiritual forces that either are allied with God called angels or those who oppose the will of God called demons, fallen angels. Now, they're nowhere near as powerful as God. Amen? But they do have a will that they attempt to exert. So you remember the story of Job in the Old Testament. Satan, one of the demons, comes to God and says, I want to break this man. And he's given permission to do so. But then there's this fifth reason that you may be in a storm, is that it's not because of your sin or someone else or the world's broken or because of demonic activity. It could simply be because of God's work in the world. You say, how in the world could God's work in the world lead to a storm? Well, let me give you three things. Again, just so you have this in the back of your mind. I don't want anyone in here to misunderstand the heart of God for you. But James 1 tells us that sometimes God will lead you or allow you into a storm to build your character. How many of you have watched a butterfly struggle to come out of the cocoon? 
We took our kids a week ago to the Chattanooga Aquarium. I know it says the Tennessee Aquarium, but it's in Chattanooga. It's the Chattanooga Aquarium. Anyway, we took them to the Chattanooga Aquarium, and in there's the butterfly exhibit. I mean, it's, it's incredible, isn't it? I saw one little kid who was itty bitty, but he thought that these were like, this was like a toy or a game, because he was going around doing this. And I mean, you could see parents and workers just eyes bug out, and they go grab Johnny, and they took Johnny away. We never saw Johnny again, and so whatever happened to Johnny, we don't know, but the butterflies are all right. We get in there, and there's a space where you can see the cocoons and the little butterflies trying to get out. And I'll tell you what you don't see. You don't see people helping the butterflies get out of the cocoon because it is in the storm that the character and the strength comes out. How tragic would it be to be saved from sin but never grow up in our salvation? So James 1 tells us that often God will lead us to a storm to build our character. Second Corinthians, we're told the other reason God may allow us into a storm is to draw us to him. Again, God's greatest goal for you is not your comfort, but that you would draw close to him. And then the third possibility is not even for your benefit, but that you'd go through a storm to help other people. We'll see that here in just a moment. And so the first thing I want you to notice is simply that to be in the will of God may mean that you are in the middle of a storm. In fact, we're told from John 6 that a strong, or the Greek word is mega, wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. It means it's just a terribly tough wind. They had to drop down their sails. They couldn't control it. So they're straining at the oars and they're being blown off course. And that leads us to the second principle for surviving a storm. It's simply this. You need to know that Jesus sees you and Jesus seeks you in the storm. Jesus sees you and Jesus seeks you in the storm. I'll say it one more time. Jesus sees you, friend, and Jesus seeks you in the storm. Notice what he says here. When evening came, the boat was in, notice this, the middle of the lake, By the way, the middle of the lake, John tells us that they had been rowing and they got thrown off course by about three to three and a half miles. The Sea of Galilee is about uh, about seven and a half miles wide, eight miles wide, and about 13 miles tall. They're in the north part and they are being blown into the middle of this massive, massive lake. And Jesus was alone on land. Now notice this. It's the middle of the night. We're going to find out. It's dark. There's a great storm that is on the sea. Waves, clouds. They're three and a half miles away. Jesus is on a mountain somewhere. And he, notice this, saw the disciples. How did he see them from that far away? You understand that Jesus then... And Jesus now has supernatural sight. He saw them when no one else could, when they were too far gone, when things were too bad, and he sees you where you are. You are never so far away that Jesus cannot see where you are. Here's what's interesting. Notice it says they were straining at the oars. Now, how in the world? You might say, well, maybe he could see the boat as a speck. Or maybe he could see the the dark outline of their figure rowing. But do you notice 
He says, straining at the oars. This is a level of detail that he notices that is impossible. Listen, you may look like everything's together, but inside you are just straining at the oars of life. And you think, no one knows, no one cares, no one can help, no one sees me. Friend, Jesus sees you. You are not alone in this. You say, yeah, but he's on the shore. We're getting there. Hang with me. Jesus sees you where you are. You are never so far as to be out of the sight of God Almighty. In fact, as they have been pressed off course, Jesus up here, he's witnessing what's going on. They're now three and a half miles deep. He doesn't simply see them. Because here's the thing, here's the thing. When I'm going through something, it's nice to have a perceptive friend who sees what I'm going through. But what is better is for a friend who can fix what I'm facing. Can I get an amen? I mean, how many of you want to go to a doctor and say, doctor, something's wrong with my arm. And the doctor looks at your arm and says, man, I I see what's wrong with it. You go, great. What do we do? He goes, oh, I can't do anything about it. I I can just see it. Well, good luck. That'll be, you know, 50 bucks. Really? Jesus doesn't simply see you. Jesus seeks you in the storm. Notice what we're told about the fourth watch of the night. By the way, when you see something like watch of the night, that's a phrase that describes a certain time in the night. The Roman world divided their evenings from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. They divided that time by four watches. They divided it into three-hour segments uh, because you'd have the four different Guards or soldiers who would be up during the different time of the night to keep watch through the night. The fourth watch is from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. It is dark as dark can be. By the way, what's the phrase? It's often darkest before dawn. Isn't it good to know that in the darkest moment of the night, there is one who stands guard over your life. He is not paid to do so. He is not a recruit. He is not put into armed forces. He is the king of kings and he stands watch over your life and he goes out to them walking on the water. The first miracle is he sees supernaturally. The second miracle is then he walks on the water. I love how one old preacher put it. He said, When the king began to walk, even the molecules of water stood at attention on which he could walk. And he goes out to them. You need to know that Jesus doesn't simply see you, but in this moment, he is seeking you right now. The good news, if you are in a storm, it may be straining and painful. Good news, Jesus sees you and in this moment is seeking you. He is looking to you and coming to you. This is something you need to pack in your survival kit. Goes on to say this. Number three, Jesus wants you to see him in the storm. See, listen, it's not simply enough that he sees you and that he seeks you. This is a relationship. It is not a one-sided interaction where there's God and then there's you and he just kind of does all the work or you do all the work. This is a relationship. And how many of us know the best relationships are those where both parties lean into each other? Jesus wants you not simply to get through the storm, but to see him in the storm. In fact, let me show you one of the most unfortunate passages 
One of the most unfortunate translations, I should say, in all of the Bible. Here it is. Are you ready? Jesus, he was about, let's say this together, shall we? Real loud. To pass by. Jesus was about to pass by them. Now, how many of you, can we just be honest? And I'm going to raise my hand. I'll just go ahead and do it real quick. How many of you have read this verse before and it's bothered you to see Jesus see his disciples struggling and then we're told as he's coming out, it's like he just kind of goes, peace, and he just keeps going. They're in the middle of a difficult time and he keeps going. Have you ever read this and just sort of felt uncomfortable with it? Anyone else in here read their Bible like I do or you go, wait a minute. You are all way too spiritual, you know that? I have never wondered that in my life. Okay, fine, fair enough. This is an unfortunate translation because when we read this, it sounds like he's saying he was just going to kind of go take a peek and keep moving. I love what one Greek scholar said. He said, the reason we read it that way is because we don't know our Old Testaments very well. This is the way God is described as showing up and revealing his glory in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, whenever God would show up, there's a word to describe those appearances where God made himself known. Those are called theophanies, basically God appearances. And in these moments, God will appear. So in Exodus chapter 3, the burning bush, God appeared to Moses. In Joshua, where Joshua meets God, the great warrior of light standing before him. Abraham meets God when he comes as a stranger. You have these repeated appearances of God. And then there's these, a couple expressions used in these moments where God doesn't simply put on clothing and appear, but he shows up in his unadulterated glory in Exodus chapter 33. Moses says, God, I just want to see your glory. And God says, you can't see my glory. It would just blow you away. But I tell you what I'm going to do. I will put you in this hollowed out space of a rock. I'll put you there. I'll cover you with my hand and I will pass by you. I'll remove my hand and the afterglow of my glory will be in view. I want to see you, God. And so he says, okay, I will pass by. And then in 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah, the man, the prophet, the, this superhero of the faith is in a downward slope. He is depressed. And he goes up to Mount Horeb, the Mount of God, and God meets him there. And God says, I'm going to show you myself and I will do it as I pass by. When we read about Jesus passing by, this is not Jesus running from them. This is Jesus revealing himself to them. He says, I want you to see me for who I am. How many of you know that it's in the dark places that you see God more clearly than in the really high places? In fact, we're going to read in just a moment that the disciples did not understand the great miracle of bread and fish They just couldn't get it. Their hearts were hardened. So when God does a great blessing and a great miracle, sometimes we don't see God clearly. But in this moment, he reveals himself fully. God's greatest desire. Let let, let me say this real clear. God loves blessing his children. Do Do you know that, family? God loves to bless his children. Now, this is not health, wealth, prosperity gospel. The fact is, good parents love to give their children good gifts. Amen? 
Do we have any good parents in this room this morning? Let's try this again. Good parents love to give their children good gifts. Amen? Amen. Is God a good parent, church? Absolutely. He loves to bless his children. But, and don't miss this, he loves to bless you, but the greatest blessing is to see him and know him clearly. Because if God gives you all the money in the world, how much of it do you get to take with you when you die? Bupkis. If God gives you a hundred years to live, will you still die one day? Yep. It doesn't matter what he gives you this side of eternity. If he does not give you himself, you are the most poor and pitiful person. It is his goal and glory that you would know him fully. And so Jesus shows up to them and we're told that he doesn't simply show up. And notice they were freaked out. They cried out because they all saw him. They were terrified. terrified. The previous verse says they thought he was a ghost. The word there is phantasm. Another way to translate it is they thought he was a water demon. Like, oh no, not only are the waves going to get us, but now a demon's going to get us. And he's like, no, 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 not demon deity. And he says to them, take courage. I love that translation. Some say, do not be afraid or, 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 or don't be scared. And I love this. Take courage, meaning it is available. You grab onto it. Why? Is it because you're not really in a storm? Oh no, you're in a storm. Is it because you have enough strength to get yourself to shore? No, it's blowing you off course. Is it because you are with highly skilled individuals who can navigate turbulent waters like the other disciples? No, they're in the boat with you. Take courage. Why? It is I, Jesus says. It is I. That phrase is the Greek phrase, ego, a me. Ego, a me. Let's all say that together. Are you ready? Ego, a me. Good job. It means, I am. In Exodus chapter 3, when Jesus, God, shows up to Moses, and Moses says, who will I say is sending me, God? When I go to the Israelites, and I don't know how to do what you've called me to do, who do I tell them sent me? And he says, you just tell them, I am sent you. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, it is ego a me. This is the name of God. God, Yahweh, sends you. This is the sacred name. He is revealing himself to them. I don't simply want you to be safe. I want you to know my salvation. I don't want you simply to get through life. I want you to come to me in life. Jesus wants you to see him, to seek him, to know him. And in the storms, often that's where it happens. This name is so sacred to the Hebrews that this little community in Qumran, some years later, when they were writing both the Old and the New Testaments down, when they were copying verbatim all of the words, when they come to the name of God... They would stop. They would leave their desk and their quill and they would bathe. And they would come back and write down the name of God. And then they would lay down their quill again and they would go and they would bathe a second time. 
Because it is so sacred. It is God's revelation. You say, what's so big deal about I am? He is not the God who was, church. He is not the God who simply will be. He is the God who is. You say, well, I am. I am what? He is whatever you need him to be. If you need help in your marriage, God can help you in your marriage. If you need help because you do not know how to get through the health situation, he can be your help in your struggle. If you need a moment where you need someone who will provide for you financially, he is the God who continues to take care of us. Listen, I'm not saying it's a blab it and grab it theology. That is sinful and not scriptural. But what is scriptural is when our Savior says, hey, I know the very hairs on your head. I know your needs before you speak them. I long to take care of my kids. I am, says, he can give you what you need. Do you see what is happening here? When you're in the storm, number three, he wants you to seek him. We're going to skip down here. Principle number four, and finally, your storm. Just remember this, church. Just remember that your storm, what you're going through, what you're facing, may be necessary for someone else's healing. That you may be in the storm not because of your benefit, but for the benefit of another person. This is what we see in the last few verses. Notice, when they had crossed over, Jesus gets in the boat, storm dies down, and then when they crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. Now, Gennesaret is on the west side It's an area, a region. There's a town, but this is the region of Gennesaret. It's three miles long and about a mile, mile and a half deep. They get there, blown off course. And listen, sometimes you think, man, I'm on a detour because of the storm. Hear me now. It is possible that what you think is a detour is actually your destination. That God has taken you there on purpose. Well, but didn't you say to go Bethsaida? Yeah, he said that, but he's leading you this direction. And when Jesus arrives with his followers, crowds of people see him. And wherever he went, they bring those who need healing, who need help. They lay him before Jesus that they may just touch the outer edge of his clothes, that they may find healing. The disciples thought they were going home, but really they were sent on another humanitarian mission. And in the process, others were helped because of their storm. I want to share with you one final thing, and we'll call it a morning here. In just a moment here, we're going to have prayer time, and our prayer leaders are going to join us up front here, and they want to pray with you, whatever you're going through, and maybe you're going through a storm, or maybe it's not you, maybe it's someone else you know and you love, and you just need to be the one who goes to the Father on their behalf. How great would it be? How great would it be to know that someone's praying for you this morning? Or to have the privilege of being able to pray for someone else this morning. I was thinking about it. I was talking to a friend last night. His name is Wayne. And uh, Wayne was telling me about a situation that happened a number of years ago with this young man. This is Tate. By the way, Tate and I, he's a good little buddy of mine. He's going into eighth grade this year. This is his mom, Lori. They're obviously enjoying some health food right there in this picture. And... uh, If carbs are your enemy, then uh, just look away for a moment. When Tate was still being hatched, his mama Lori, she was about eight months, eight and a half months pregnant, and she took 
their dog for a walk. Now, this dog isn't a small dog, and it's not a real lazy dog. It's got a little bit of zip to it, and she's out walking this dog. She's got the big belly. She's just going along and getting going. I'm out in the waddle. I don't know if that really happened, but that just seems to be in my mind. So she's kind of going along, and all of a sudden, the dog sees a squirrel. Now, church, when a dog, and not just like a dog, but a dog, when a dog sees a squirrel, what does that dog want to do? Chase the squirrel. Well, the dog sees the squirrel and he goes, boom, yanks her. She trips and she falls right on her stomach, full weight, every bit of it. Well, she gets up, gets the dog, but, but she's in a lot of pain. She's going, something's just not right. She goes home, she lays down, it's still not right. A couple hours later, it's still not right. So she calls the doc. They say, you need to come in right away. They get her in. They, they, they do initial tests, but they say, we don't even really want to wait for that. We need to go ahead and induce labor. So they, they do so. They induce labor. And Lori is there in the hospital, her husband with her. And as the baby Tate is starting to come out, the doctor said, wait, 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 slow down, slow down a second here. They had to work because what they found as she was giving birth is Tate's umbilical cord was wrapped a number of times around his neck. And so much so that had he stayed in there, most likely to term, he would not have made it alive. Or if he had made it, they're concerned that the blood flow or the oxygen flow to the brain would have been so diminished he would have been a vegetable or some other situation. But because of the squirrel, they find it. And now this kid who has just grown like a weed is in great shape putting down corn dogs like there's no tomorrow. Thank God for that squirrel. How many of us know that sometimes the storms that we face end up being the squirrels that save lives? That it's in the moment where you are going through it, you can't see how this will benefit anyone. How could this bring glory to God, the good of others, or your own joy? How? 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 It's often not until after the storm you look back and you see God orchestrating or allowing or participating in your boat to see what was supposed to be. I'll give you one example. There's one afternoon, it was Friday, and there's a crowd of people gathered on a hill outside of Jerusalem. It's called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And if you'd arrived just a few minutes earlier, you'd have heard the hammering of giant spikes into wood. And you'd have heard the screams of men as those spikes drilled through their wrists and their feet. And if you were to look and you were to see Jesus Christ, the wave walker, being hoisted up, if you and I had been there, we would have said, how could this be anything but horrible, God? How is this a part of your plan? How could you allow the wickedness of others to bring the perfection of God to a cross? And it's not until the third day after he is dead and buried and then the stone is rolled away that Easter morning that the world knew the storm was for the salvation of other people. That his work was not thwarted because of your storm, because of Jesus' storm, because of someone else's storm. Family, listen to me this morning. I don't know what you're going through, but Jesus goes through it with you. 
And this is not the end. But you may not see why until you get to the end. So have you packed your bag? Do you have your survival kit? Are you ready? Because when the storm comes, you just need to know that you have a God who loves you, who's with you. And when you get to the other side, as we all will one day and we see him face to face, it will be clear all that has happened.